Hey Rippers, are you learning how to surf? But have you got a clue, or are you a big old kook? Since there's a million ways to kook it, you should stick around and learn a few things. Cause if you don't know, let me tell you right now that surfers love to spot a kook. But don't get all stressed about it, cause everyone kooks it once in a while. And that's the reason we start a kook cast. Cause the more you know, the less you'll kook it. <laughs> so bust out your swimmies and get ready to learn. KookCast is here to lead you on your journey out of kookdom, one episode at a time. And hopefully, offer you some traction on this slippery slope between kookery and killing it. I'm your host, Coach Chris, and I started the surf coaching and education resource, thesurfcontinuum.com. Well, let me tell you that I am so pleased to have been able to sit down with this week's guest, especially because it almost slipped right through my fingers. <laughs> So let me take a minute to tell you about it because it's a pretty good example of just making something happen despite circumstances not going how you might have preferred. I'd gone into Bird's Surf Shed early in my recent three-week stay on the West Coast just to check in and see if he'd be down to record an episode of KookCast with me. And he was into it, and we made this vague plan to record together next week, quote-unquote. So when I hit him up the next week, he didn't answer, and Coach Evan and I had our La Miss trip coming up, so off I went to Baja with a group of students. Another week later, I'm on my way back to the States after the trip, and it occurred to me that tomorrow would be the only other chance I had to record with him before I'd be turning around to head back to Baja again for one more short trip and then flying home to the East Coast. I tried reaching him again, and he got right back to me saying tomorrow would work. And that was pretty epic, I thought, until I realized I didn't bring anything with me from Baja except a pair of bloomers and a fresh shirt. My camera, microphones, basically everything was sitting in my room in La Mission. So since Bird is in California, I couldn't put this opportunity off, and, and it was important to me that I did this recording in-house with him personally because he told me he was going to take me around the shop and just show me and talk about a few special boards. So the reason I'm saying all this is because I nearly canceled on him. But big shout out to my cousin Danny. He got me all geared up with some recording equipment he had laying around and encouraged the mindset of just getting this episode done even if the situation wasn't ideal. And I knew he was right, but any dedicated listener of this show knows how much I cringe at every episode where audio quality isn't at least decent. Which there's a few, and now there's one more. <laughs> so I was bummed I wouldn't get the quality I wanted, but I've been learning for a long time that perfection is an evil enemy of just getting something done. Needless to say, the audio isn't great, it's uneven, I felt clumsy and a little uncomfortable without my normal gear, but I got it done. Bird was a legend, and as an added bonus, his favorite shaper and one of the world's greatest, Dane Purley was downstairs in the bay working on some longboards and meeting new clients. All of the online members of the surfcontinuum.com go head over to the site and log in for the video version of this episode, plus an extra 20 minutes that isn't included here of Bird taking me around the shop and showing me some of his favorite boards. He also introduces me to Dane Purley, and Dane takes a minute to break down one of his latest innovations with fin theory and placement, and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. When I finished this episode and I was walking out to the car to leave, I was thinking, um, I'm kind of like Fred Rogers <laughs> from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, going around the town, 
meeting factory workers and learning how crayons are made and stuff like that. Well, anyway, let's get into this episode because I think that's about the longest intro I've ever done. And we'll pick it up right where Bird starts talking about how he learned how to surf. Well, my experience, as far back as I can remember, is that um, I've got a large family. I've got eight brothers and sisters. And uh, my mom and dad, they had driven out here from Minnesota. All of us were born here with the exception of my oldest sister. Uh, but she was like three months old and they wanted to get away from the snow. They drove out here to California, up to San Francisco. My dad had a job. Before he took the job, he wanted to come all the way south and see what it was like down south. They got to San Diego, broke down, and this is where they ended up. So by the time that I came along, that was uh, April 17, 1957. I had an older sister, two older brothers. My dad had two or three jobs and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, which was common then. And uh, she loved the ocean so much that just about any time that we weren't, you know, school, and I was preschool by that time, we'd go to the beach. So we'd just hang at the beach, the Hoya Cove, the whole time. And uh, we had a rubber, or not a rubber, we had a foam um, surfboard. It's just styrofoam. I remember it like I could close my eyes. Yeah, I mean, the thing was a hunk of foam that was at the time, it was probably like three feet long, seemed thicker and wider. It had two uh, fins that were uh, molded into the foam mold. So that was our surf, first real surf experience. We'd take it to the beach and either do jump-ins on it if we're at La Jolla Cove where there aren't real waves you just jump in and skate for a little bit or if we went to a beach where there were waves you know we'd fight over it and you know we, we could stand on it because you know I was I don't know three four years old my brothers are two years older than me two years older than that brother so we're right the same age group so that was our introduction to, to riding waves you know and then from there um, I grew up in Mission Hills. Mission Hills is about five miles inland from the coast. Um, so it was difficult to get to the ocean. And uh, we grew up, my brothers, I took, followed their lead. They, we grew up kneeboarding, riding kneeboards or, or pipo boards, much like the boards hanging over our heads right here. So they're belly boards basically. But when you're, you know, five years old or six years old, eight years old, nine years old, you know, you can kneeboard on them, you can stand on them for that matter. So that was our mode of, of surf equipment, and that's how we kind of got introduced into it. The first board I had was a, uh, a wooden pipo that my brother had made in wood shop. And when he got a, a foam board, then you know the hand-me-down tradition was I got whatever is left over. So it was literally a, a wooden belly board that he had nailed a fin on, and that's what I learned on initially. He got a better board, I got a better board, and, and it kind of that's pretty much the way it commenced. So that's that's the way, you know, as more kids came along in the family, we still all kept going to the beach and, you know, people, we'd ride ways any way you could. Right, didn't right. Really, didn't really matter. So, know. and did you guys have any mentor, anybody over you helping you learn or was it all Nobody. just free for all with brothers and sisters? 100% free for all. It was all just, you know, get it, it do it and, um, wherever you know you saw anybody you would you know you would mimic whoever you might see if there was somebody surfing at the beach that you were at to a certain extent but surfing is pretty straightforward if you really want to look at it you know there's basic fundamentals to it 
that if you have the, the basic two or three, four things down right from the initial get-go, then it's just a matter of repetition and interpretation. Mm. And uh, that's probably why one of the reasons I love it so much is because I'm not a group guy, right? I, I'm I a solo that. guy. I love the way you just said that right there. It's like three, four basic things yeah. and then the intuition, the art form of it, yeah. know, the reading. How you want to interpret it? You know, how, how do you want to ride a wave? And to me, surfing is riding anything. I mean, you know, stand up, kneeboard. I grew up kneeboarding. Mm -hmm. I didn't start standing up till later. You know, hand planes, you know, we had hand planes, you know, I mean, pre-boogie boards, so we rode a lot of inflatables. My sister ran a raft concession in the summer, so we'd go down there and hang. And whenever the rafts weren't rented out, you know, we'd grab those and go out. So, um, yeah, there's all kinds of ways to ride waves. I, I love that you say that because that's kind of a common theme for us to talk about. Like, you know, people get in their head, especially nowadays, and so much imagery kind of manipulates people's perception of the sport. And yeah. so now surfing is standing on a wave in the pot, and even maybe even more precise than that, when in actuality, the essence of surfing is being in the pocket on whatever or without any craft. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you have to, the fundamental steps, that one of the fundamental steps I was talking about um, of the three or four I'd mentioned was that, you know, you, swimming, obviously, but after that is body surfing. Mm -hmm. You know, and through body surfing, there's no better way to learn the ocean than body surfing because you learn the rhythms of it. You're, you're stripped down to the very essentials. You know, you don't even have swim fins at that time because you're too small and you know they don't make them that small at least back then they didn't or we didn't have the money for them so you know you learn to ride the, the wave in as basic of a form as you can and then everything develops about that you know the etiquette comes from from swimming with people you know you might be body surfing but there's still people that are swimming so you know you have to learn the etiquette of not running people over and sharing waves whether or not they're riding the waves or not you know, that's just, that just, it all starts from that basic fundamental thing in the water and, and however you want to ride a wave. And then you expand upon it. Beautiful, yeah, yeah. that's just so well said. So I guess body surfing was a big part of your growth as a surfer. Yeah, it was a really big part again, because you know, tra transporting boards to the beach or not having boards, you know, there were times when we had that little styrofoam board, you know, there was one. So, you know, if you weren't on that styrofoam board, you know, then you were still trying to ride waves on your stomach. Something. Yeah, or, or anything else for that matter. I mean, you know, getting back to taking Taco Bell trays, you know, in Hawaii and riding Taco Bell trays at, at Sandy Beach and stuff when I was a little bit older. There's so many different ways to ride the wave that I never really thought that it was exclusive to, to one form or another. You know, you gravitate towards whatever you're most comfortable to or whatever you choose to do. A lot of people I know got into uh, stand-up paddle surfing a lot. And then the majority of them, much like skiers, you know, a lot of guys got into snowboarding, a lot of them went back to skis. A lot of the guys that were avid stand-up uh, paddleboard guys went back to, you know, regular old surfing for whatever reason, you know, right. it's, it's all good. Right, it, well, it's like what you said, just the interpretation. Yeah. And that can evolve over your life. Yeah, and it's like the same with the equipment that you ride. I never wanted to get pegged into any one type of surfing, I guess because my my knowledge base was upon riding waves no matter what. So consequently, I mean, I, I'd ride a 
shortboard, I'd ride a longboard, I'd ride a gun, I'd ride a twin fin, I'd ride whatever. Any kind of board I could get. As I grew up in surfing, I always wanted to ride the widest variety of boards I could get and then get the feel of what those boards were designed to do. People have to understand you have to ride a surfboard for what, what the surfboard's designed to do. You get good enough, you can make a surfboard do a lot of different things, but initially if you try to project what you want into a surfboard that's not designed to do that, you know, you're pretty much fighting a losing battle. Mm. So, you know, you want to you, you wanna, um, ride whatever equipment you're riding to how it's designed and, and take it as far as you want to take it. That reminds me of uh, a metaphor I like to use and I've said before on the show, but it would be like as if a carpenter tried to hammer a nail with a screwdriver yeah. or something. It would be ridiculous. There you go, yeah. I mean, you could feasibly do it with the butt end of it or whatnot, but I mean, you know. <laughs> you could force it. Yeah, you could force it. And, and whatever you're going to build is going to come out like crap. So, you know, more than likely, unless you're MacGyver. But yeah, you know, you want to have the right tools, utilize the tools in, in the, the proper way. And then, then hopefully, have mentors or people around you that you can draw off of to uh, to learn the proper way. And that's what led me into starting to work at surf shops when I was 12 years old, because you know I was tired of hand-me-down equipment. I figured the best way to get good equipment was to work at a shop, you know. And the best way to work at a shop was to you know totally involve yourself and, and get to know everybody that came in that shop and look at the variety of different styles and the different people and the different attitudes that they all brought to it. So I was like a little sponge, you know, at, at 12, there wasn't anybody younger than me really hanging, um, but everybody was, you know, four years older. When you're 16 and, you know, I'm 12, I mean, that's an old guy. So you got guys in their 28 and their 30s, 40s that had started surfing back in the 30s, 40s. I sucked it all up. You know, they all had their opinion and it, it all, pretty much evolved, revolved around the basic three to four fundamental things that we were talking about. Mm. So don't make it complicated. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, I like, that. that's the beauty of surfing is I, the you know, simplicity. I, yeah, and I feel like it's making me think like that's where a lot of good style comes from, is like the simplicity and like allowing the board to do what it wants to do rather than insisting on your yeah. some other guy. No, well, no doubt, you know, and, and the, the idea of style came came from you know, a personal a personal approach you know and when you were younger everybody's going to copy somebody to a certain extent but to have your own individual style I mean it was not hard to look out in the ocean when there was 10 12 guys out and being able to name each guy by how they surf you know nowadays it's very very repetitious and um, because people are you know they're more of a follower I think and it's changed now the last five to ten years you know since things have loosened up you're starting to see a lot more I think of, of individual styles out there depending upon the equipment you're riding but um, yeah it, it should be an individual thing you know you should be able to draw from it and, and take from it what you want perfect example is I'll go out and I'll have so much fun on a day surfing on whatever board I'm on having such a good time and I'll come in and you know somebody will go God how, how was that board feeling I go oh man that was epic it looked like it was hanging you up you know it didn't look like you were surfing as good as you know when you rode that little fish a couple days ago and I'm like well that's cool 
I sure did have a good time and I felt fine about it. So, you know, again, it's an interpretation of what somebody else might think is basically irrelevant if, if you're per personally satisfied. You know, so I mean, do it, do it from the heart, do it the way, you, you know, you want to do it. Um, sure, take hints, you know, if you want to incorporate in, into what you're doing, so be it. But, you know, don't try to mold yourself into something that you don't com com feel comfortably doing, you know. So I'm getting the feeling that you still kind of mix it up a lot with your boards. Yeah. And it's, it's true. You ride a lot of different boards. Or what do you do? You have any preference? Do you have any anything that pulls you a little more than another, or do you really truly just mix it up? Like, well, over the last three years, I, I had um, I've had some health issues that have prohibited me from riding anything short. You know, normally I'd ride boards between five six to nine foot. Anything in between, it didn't really matter. Always, you know, it'd be a fish, it'd be a, a tomo, uh, it'd be a skiff fry egg, it'd be, a, you know, a caster longboard, whatever. But the health issues have, have led me back more towards larger boards. So primarily I, I stay in the, what people are now calling mid-length boards. So I've got a 6.6 Josh Hall fish that he made me as a recovery board. I ride that fair amount. That's probably about the shortest thing I ride now. So all the hundreds of short, short boards I've got, I don't know if I'll ever get back on those or not. You know, I'm, I'm aging out, I'm 65 this coming Sunday. And uh, yeah, yeah, Easter Sunday. And I'm not, you know, I'm just, you've got to, again, you have to accept where you are at. And, um, you know, for me, it's never been about catching a lot of waves. So that isn't the equation. I get quite a few people that go, I want a bigger board because I want to catch more waves. For me, it, that was never the issue. If I catch four or five ways in a couple hours and they're good ways, I'm, I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. But I still have to be able to catch four or five ways, and I still have to have a board that's stable enough as I slow down from where I was to where I am now. You know, so you gotta be practical. Mm -hmm. So primarily I ride things between 6.6 to uh, eight O's, you know, right in that kind of a realm. And then it'll, it'll diversify. It might be a Twinser, it might be, I try. I still ride a lot of single fins. I like single fins. One, uh, one whole winter, I rode nothing but single fins about five, six my, years my, ago. My you know, I've just pulled them down. I didn't ride anything but a little 6.6, six, six, and then I had a, a, it was a big winter, so I had like an 8.2 or an 8.4 I rode. And I mean, I just rode two single fins for the whole whole winter. And that was fun. That was, to me, pretty pretty liberating because, you know, as much as I like riding different boards, it can get kind of confusing. You know, but again, it was it's a personal preference. You know, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I just I like the different feels. You know, I just I'd get bored eating at the same restaurant all the time or eating my own cooking. You know, so you go out and sometimes you eat something on a menu that you don't particularly like, but you know, you want to experience something. Yeah, you want to change it. Can you can you talk to me more about like the single fin experience? As a, so, I grew up on the East Coast. I think I mentioned to you mm -hmm. and. and there was this really strong culture when I was growing up of thrusters only, six feet and under, or you're out of the pack. <laughs> you know, you're not welcome to surf with us. And so yeah. for a long time, that kind of kept me in a, like uh, in bondage, and I didn't really experience anything else other than that until I got old enough to have my own like mind about me. That, yeah. No, I want to try other boards. Well, yeah, that was that was a tragedy <clears throat> because. People call it the momentum generation or whatever, but I mean, I call it the dark years, the Slater years, and that was exactly what happened, you know. Imagine how it was 
growing up as I did on single fins and fishes and twin fins and then being a surf shop owner or salesperson and having people come in buying stuff that you knew wasn't the best for them you know I mean it was killing us because there were so many people I know that quit surfing because of stigma against riding a single fin or a multiple fin other than a thruster was so strong you got so vibed at a lot of places that it really took the fun out of it for quite a few people so quite a few people just they just stopped it wasn't fun they didn't like the vibe they didn't like the attitude they didn't like the fluorescent colors the loud music the choppy edits on the videos so it it kind of took them out of the picture and consequently surfing suffered for a long time i mean a, a minimum of 12 to 15 years really anywhere from the late late 80s as boards really got thin all through the 90s and the early 2000s um you know people were kind of stuck in that that void not as much in san diego just because san diego is such a rudy place and there's been so much surfboard development out of here um that a lot of people didn't buy into that you know but um across the board most people that were magazine orientated or video orientated there wasn't any social media um like you know like there is now um you know they that's just what they were fed on and uh yeah it was it was a very very static time it really was it's, it's affected surfing in a bad way you got thousands of boards out there that nobody can ride right. what are you going to do with them I mean, you can jump on an old 70s or 80s board and you can ride it because it has volume, but there's not too many people that can ride the boards from the 90s because they couldn't ride them then, so they sure can't ride them now. And they didn't ride that well unless you were just in the right kind of shape and the right kind of waves. Otherwise, you were basically, you know, surfing with a handicap of about 20 per 30 percent or more. Sure, yeah. So you got all these boards and then you've got people that have surfed for many, many years, but they never de developed the, the basic fundamentals of surfing. You know, they never learned to have a board and control what the board's doing. All they've ever learned is how to try to keep up with the board. So it's been stagnant. And, you know, it obviously over the last, well, close to 20 years now, things have definitely circled back around and it's more about, hey, I, I don't care, I wanna have fun and, you know, it, it's probably one of the best times to ever be a surfer right now because it's so liberating on what you can ride and you don't have to buy into the bullshit of you know being this or that i'm just a surfer you know i never wanted to be called well are you a short border are you a long border are you a soul surfer i'm you know, you know what i just surf i ride what i want where i want how i want and you should maybe try that too sometime you know so that's always kind of been my philosophy you know Maybe that's why I've got 1,400 boards in my collection, is because you know each one's different, and I've always been willing to share with people. Watching people get frustrated surfing, you know, especially when it's on equipment that I know that they could they could be doing better on. It's like just try it, you know what I mean? Just just get out of that little mind box and try something. So, yeah, that was you know you grew up at a very tough time. Yeah. I feel sorry for you and your whole. <laughs> Your whole generation, because there's a lot of, a lot of uh, really, really cool things that you guys just didn't have a chance to take advantage of. Yeah, it's true, and you know, I gotta say, like the, the lucky way that I found my way out of that was getting to a point in my teen years where I couldn't afford a surfboard. 
and a friend of mine inherited from somebody this old half-shaped or I mean, it was like 80 to 90 percent shaped in glass it just needed to be sanded basically yeah. it was a 70s down rail single fin probably about seven feet long one yeah. point forward Standard. and he was like here dude you know i just finished sanding. if you want to ride it you can and at first i was like oh man yeah. look at this thing oh god like cringing and then i, I mean i was on that thing for two to three you know i'm I had no money, you know? So this is my board for two to three years, and I ended up loving it. Sure. And it just set me on a whole new path of what I look for in a surfboard. Yeah, because you went, you went from one extreme to another. There was also those times that all during the 70s, you know, when, when everybody wanted to ride guns. You know, I mean, back here, you know, we, we were watching what everybody in Hawaii was doing. You know, those guys are surfing pipe, and you know, they all got pintails. Mm -hmm. So. California, I mean, you had a less extreme board, but it was still a much narrower board than what you really needed for around here. You know, I mean, that's why the fish thing was so good. I, you know, I grew up on fishes and eggs from kneeboarding. So I was all about having a wider, fuller, shorter board that had an area because even though we were kneeboarding, we still would stand up on those boards with our fins on sometimes because, you know, you could. So, you know, I, I, had the narrow guns as I started to surf for Big Rock and La Jolla and things of that sort, but I always had fishes around as well. You know, and as I quit kneeboarding and got into stand-up surfing more as my knees got racked up, um, you know, I still carried over, you know, that idea of knowing how well a, a shorter, wider, fuller board will skate, you know, so I approached it maybe a, a little bit more differently. And in San Diego in general, Gordon and Smith, you know, very, very major surfboard builder here. They had a contingency of, of guys like Tony Staples, Gary Keating, obviously Skip Fry, Hanky Warner, Terry Gold. I mean, all these guys that were really good surfers and shapers, and they, they fully grasped the concept of, you know, riding a wider, fuller board. And most of those guys were inland guys. You know, they grew up inland, so when they came to the beach, they wanted to have fun, and they were surfing the beaches more often, and they didn't have the luxury if you grew up on the ocean, especially on one of the reefs, the waves are better. So when you surfed, you generally had better quality waves. Therefore, you know, having a narrower, gunnier board would be more applicable. But if you were what I call more of a general surfer, and you know, you were inland based, you didn't know where you were going to go at any given time. So you wanted to have a board that was going to be a little bit more versatile, so that you know, if you did go to the reef break, you'd handle that. But if you're surfing mostly beach breaks, they would handle that too. So, um, you know, there's always, I guess, been those little, little focuses, you know, like longboards. I mean, nobody, everybody hated longboards. Everybody hated kneeboarders when I was a kneeboarder because there was no boogie boarders. So, you know, everybody wants to pick on the low man. So the whole time I grew up kneeboarding, I dug it because nobody did it. You know, it was me, my brothers, and, you know, we had a real tight group of guys that kneeboarded. And everybody who stood up on a board hated you, and we didn't care because we could ride waves that they couldn't ride. We could surf the Big Rock and nobody would go there or some of these gnarly reef breaks because you could get in the waves tighter and, and you could make waves that these guys weren't even thinking about. So that was our reward. But, um, you know, once boogie boarders came out, then, you know, everybody piled up on the boogie border, you know, and then. Everybody wants to have a pick on somebody thing. Right, you know, you couldn't ride a longboard for almost ever. If you rode a longboard, you know, you really got heckled by people. 
San Diego, again, not as bad because we've got PB Point. We've got areas where people just, you know, they continue to ride on through it. But there was very, very, very few people that were riding longboards in the, uh, the latter part of the 70s, all through the 80s. You know, um, they were frowned upon. You know, I mean, I didn't even sell them out of the stores we were in. You know, yeah. Seven foot boards, maybe eight foot kind of eggy-ish kind of deals, but not a... That was it. <clears throat> not, yeah, not a longboard. You know, there's, there's Which is a, sad. Yeah, there's a, well, Joel Tudor did it pretty much single-handedly, you know, erase that, you know, stigma. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by, <clears throat> it's, it's pretty well documented, like the La Jolla guys, you know, uh, and, and like Malibu, but the Cliffs crew, you know, and, and, and like Steve Bliss and the, pretty much the, the development of the fish. Can you speak a little bit about that, especially since you're right here in it and, and boards are just right up your alley? How did that all happen? I, I guess it's coming from kneeboarding, no? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. This fish design came came from kneeboarding, and we did this documentary uh, <clears throat> called Fish, and it, it goes into great details on it, maybe too long, but it's pretty fascinating. But I mean, yeah, there was a need to to find a, a better type of a board, you know, and at that time, you know, ride mostly single fins that were a narrower tail, more like a wider surfboard. He just needed something that would not let the fins hang over the tail. So he literally sat down on the ground on a piece of butcher paper and he drew an outline right around him with his fins on. So he had to make the tail wide enough so that his fins wouldn't be hanging off the edge because that would slow you down you know, and then he ended up putting a, a, a split in the tail because you wanted a narrow tail when you were turning, as you would be on a stand-up board. But when you were getting into a wave, you know, or riding the wave flat, you know, you needed to have those fins contained. And, uh, and then he put two fins on it because, you know, it was so wide, you couldn't control it with a single fin in the middle. It, would be, it got too slidey or it'd be just too pivoty and, you know, it didn't have any draw. So it was, it was a natural, kind of a natural um, a, a progression that he took off on and being that he was one of the best surfers of any, any sort at that time, kneeboard, stand-up or whatever, um, you know, people took note of it pretty quick. But the cliffs is, is different than anywhere that I've ever surfed. There's clicks within clicks within clicks within clicks, um, you know, and that's to some extent anywhere. But down there, nobody cared about anything that people were doing on the outside. Very, very little influence from, you know, whatever the magazines were saying. None of it was relative because everybody down in that particular area was so creative in doing things themselves. And also at that time frame that the main surfboard builders had fallen apart. The shortboard evolution had come in. It had put most of the longboard guys out of business. They couldn't make the transition. So people were mainly building boards out of their garage, you know, and if you had a board that had a label on it in a lot of places, then you were the kook because, you know, the garage sold was what it was. It was about, you know, buying a $5 blank from Mitch's and, you know, shaping it yourself or paying somebody that was better than you five bucks and then 10 bucks for materials, you know, 25 bucks, 30 bucks to make a board. You know, and like you said, when you're broke, you know, yeah. You know, and when you're breaking boards, no cord, so, you know, that board might not last you if you're surfing the reefs. That thing might not last you a month, 
you know, so innovation was continuous. It was somewhat cost-effective, and um, everybody would hand things down again. So there was a lot of sharing of ideas and um, a lot of borrowing of, of different ideas, but then, you know, taking it and, and doing it the way you wanted to do it. So it's very liberating down there. Still to this day, there's quite a few different people down there that stay within their own little world and their own little realm and do their own little things down there. And they, they never cared about, you know, the outside at all. They didn't care whether there was an influence that they could put out to the world. They just did it their own way. And, and pretty much that was it, you know, so. Yeah, it's different. It's just a, it's a different kind of an attitude. I don't know what else to compare it to, really, when I think of all the other areas. There's innovation in any area. Every area has some innovation. But I think down there, it was that was the exception to the rule. Innovation was the rule, and the exception to it was conformity. So, um, yeah, a lot of crazy ideas came out of there. Mm. This, you know, the talk of the surfboard is reminding me of a discussion I had with Matt Warshaw and we were talking about how the surfer to their surfboard is unlike any other athlete's relationship to their equipment you know there's very we, we were trying to think of what and he, he made a good point maybe a musician to their instrument is an equivalent cowboy and his horse Ooh, okay good. that's not a sport but I mean you know in the day you had one board maybe you had two boards you know, it wasn't such a thing as a quiver. You know, I mean, you made whatever you had work and whatever you had. Your horse was your life. You know, you lose that horse, your horse wasn't trained right. I mean, you knew that horse better than you knew your your partner or your wife or your, you know, your whoever, you know. So you really were really intimate with your surfboards in those days, you know, um, because if you didn't have it to ride, if it got jacked up, well, you know, there, you didn't have a backup necessarily. and. Um, Again, you have to ride a surfboard for what that board's designed to do. So, you know, you have to learn what that board will let you do, and then you focus on the best that board can give you. Then you try to adapt, you know, other things to it, and then eventually you, you want to adapt to another board. But um, an extremely, extremely tight relationship, as it used to be with a, a shaper and a surfer. You know, nowadays it's a model thing. You know, people go online and you know, it's, it's the next big thing is going to be a, a Pluto model or it's going to be a mid, a mid-length model or somebody's going to hang a, a handle on it, you know, and I can't keep up with all that stuff. You know, a surfboard's a surfboard and there's variations of surfboards and you have to look at that more importantly than the, the kind of name or the kind of branding that somebody wants to, to put on a board. You know, they want to peg it. Like they want to peg leaders, you know, the whole thing about leaders. That really drives me nuts because we never dealt with leaders in the day. It was called float, you know, and you knew the proper float based upon your experience with whatever boards you had learned on. You know, you know that a thicker, longer board gives you more float. A shorter board is going to give you less float. And what do you want for the way you're surfing or where you're going to surf? Now people come in and, you know, if it's two liters or a liter and a half over what the computer says, then they don't want it. Right, right. And I'm like, well, who, who's telling you this, you know? Well, I punched in my, you know, my medium ability level with my age and my weight and how often I, often I surf, they spit me out a number. 
I go, man, that's really kind of not as relevant as you expect. And it's where the leaders are. I go, you want a 40 liter board? Fine. Get a 7.0 that's 19 inches wide by three inches and you got 40 liters. Or get a 5.6 or a 6.0 fish, get the 40 liters or whatever it might be underneath of you where you need it. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's trippy the way, you know, people just still buy in, into things and, you know, they, they think that surfing is, you know, they, they miss the mysticism of surfing sometimes. You know, it's not plug and play. It's not like, okay, you want to surf this way, then get this model board, you know. Try different things, look at what makes that board supposedly able to do what you want it to do. And then, you know, look at other designs at the same time. And, you know, just don't buy because it's a so-called, you know, new model or whatnot. There's, so, a lot of, there's a lot of marketing now behind these things, yeah. you know, who rides it Huge. And, and how they make it look cool or whatever it is. And like you said, it's kind of going backwards. It's like, oh, you yeah. surf like that, so you need this board, and then you need, you know. That's the way it was in the 60s, you know, when they finally came out with models, you know, a Drew Harrison model, a this guy model, a that guy model, Corky Carroll model or whatnot. You know, I mean, nobody is going to surf like those guys are going to surf. There's aspects of how they surf that are applicable to their board design. But I mean, like, what do you want to get a Kelly Slater model for? You know, you might want to get what the, what the designs are off of that board and expand upon it. But, you know, trying to buy something that's made and designed for somebody that's surfing waves like you'll never surf with a God-given or, or God-learned ability level. You know, you can use it as a guideline, but you know, you gotta be realistic about it. Right, right. And uh, yeah, so it's, th those garage soul days were fun because man, we made the weirdest shit. You know, I mean, the weirdest stuff you could make because it wasn't that expensive. And you know, you're constantly playing with fins and, and things of that, that nature. So it was just an interpretation and the, the canvas was wide open. You know, I mean, it was a broad, broad canvas and you could paint that thing any way you wanted. So now it's, you know, maybe not quite as much. So I'm thinking about you in like your prime years of surfing, you know, when you're just fully head over heels and surf. Well, not that you're not now, but just commit life committed to it, surfing your best, feeling your best. Who were your role model? Who were the guys you looked up to that you were like, man, that, these are the guys I'm trying to surf like or emulate this bottom turn or this little tuck that he does when he's in the pocket? It would vary from year to year. I mean, like my top five, like probably five favorite surfers ever, <clears throat> you know, that, that influenced me as being younger. And I still, you know, I look at that. You look at your first influences, it's going to influence you for the rest of your life. Sure. So it's like your first love. You know, you base everything off that first love, good or bad or whatever. But, you know, Barry Kaniapuni, uh, well, always skip fry, you know, I mean, still to this day, you know, guys like that, um, they, they were, you know, Billy Hamilton, uh, Paul Strau, you know, guys that were, to me, more stylish, you know, that they, they were um, cool under pressure. Those were the kind of guys that I like, you know, a lot of guys love Dewey Weber. Never dug that guy that much because, he, you know, he was radical, you know, little man on wheels. He did some crazy surfing and he was like the idol of guys like Skip Fry and guys like that because he could do stuff and, and get in places that they couldn't do. 
but he was younger than, you know, obviously a younger generation than me, and I, I liked the smoother side of surfing, and I still do, you know. Um, you can bust an air fine with me, but you can do it in a clean way. You know, I can appreciate uh, Idlo, how he surfs, because he's so ragged, but he's not my favorite surfer. Right. You know, the way he does things, the way he gets there, a lot of the Brazilians and uh, other surfers, obviously not just Brazilians, their, their attack game plan is, is way different than what I like, you know. Um, it's just kind of a matter of preference, you know. It's how you put the whole package together, ultimately, ultimately, ultimately for me. And that's, you know, when I watch people surf nowadays, you know, kids, they want to do the air, they want to do the big bash, but that's all they're doing. They're not working on a flow or they're not even completing the wave. You know, they're, they're just constantly waiting, 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 and it, it, it's like nervous surfing, you know. I don't see them wanting to groove and glide and slide too much. Um, but, you know, I, again, I'm old guy. Interpretation. You know? Yeah, interpretation. It's what you said before. But when you were a kid, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, you got stamp out the amp out. That was a term, you know. Nobody down here liked the way they surfed in L.A., Echo Beach and stuff, because those guys were radical. You know, they were sliding and flying, and down here it was like, you know, you didn't move your hands. I mean, your hands were stationary, you know, especially depending upon the areas you were in. La Jolla, very, very much a style-conscious place. Sunset Cliffs, very, very much a style-conscious place. You know, and you could spot somebody that, that wasn't from these areas instantly, just by how they paddled, more aggressive, more, you know, just this frantic kind of a feel. Or down here, it was more like wait in line, you know, get your waves, surf that wave as long as you can, and, you know, and it crews. And, you know, it's, it's just a different approach, mm -hmm. but it's, I, I like it. Yeah, it, it just happens to be my personal approach to surfing, too, is, is more about letting the wave kind of help you determine what's the next step, what do yeah. you do next. And I like the way you said, like, it's like this nervous energy they have when they're, they're like pumping, 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 yeah. pumping, like looking for that perfect section for the maneuver. Meanwhile, passing up all these yeah. other beautiful opportunities. That's the worst. Yeah. They could they could be like stalling and getting barreled, and they're they're racing it because they want to hit the, the section down the right. down the line, they're you know. At the closeout. Or they could be doing yeah, they could be doing some wicked cutback to check their speed instead of you know, I don't know. But again, that's kind of part of what makes surfing more individualized and. Um, a lot of that has to do with, you know, the equipment you choose to ride, too. Okay, so this is one that, um, that Cole put me on, on the thread. And uh, he, was, he wanted me to ask you about Chris O'Rourke. Oh. And I'm familiar with him through a movie called Changes. Skip yeah. Fry was in that one. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh yeah, I got it right here. Yeah. It's, I it's think I've got thing. it right in that pile. Oh man, that's so funny because yeah. when I was growing up, you know, my mom is taking me to church and, yeah. you know, trying to keep me on a path and sure. because I'm going like down the surfer path and I'm sure she had all these ideas about where that could lead. So Absolutely. She this, she's trying to like thread the needle here between staying relevant, cool with my son, you know, get him a surfing movie, but get changes because yeah. <laughs> they're all you know Christian stories about yeah. these guys find God absolutely um, and uh, that was anyway, an important yeah, movie at the time a beautiful surfer yeah. and, and unfortunate you know ending did you did you know him very much or I was at his bedside the day he died 
me, Bill Casker, who he rode for, another friend of mine, Jeff Grennan, and one other guy were in the hospital room uh, when he passed away. And I had to go out and get his wife and let him know that he had just passed. So yeah, I knew Chris really, really, really well, especially um, towards the end. And um, you know, a real, real aggressive, me first, arrogant, basically kind of an asshole guy. Not too many people liked him um, because of his aggressive nature. That was part of his heritage and, and the life how he grew up, his family background, you know, there were a lot of things in all of our lives that make us who we are. But he was not a nice guy, particularly um, because he was he was so, uh, so driven, you know, to be the best. And he was at one time the best California surfer, um, according to just about anybody you wanted to talk to for that short time period before he got the cancer. But we hung around a lot and I watched his change, you know, once he understood that there was more to life than just surfing and you know that his affliction was ultimately going to probably kill him then he started to, to listen to some of his contemporaries that had already found the lord and you know he freed himself up he, he bellowed himself out and at the end you know he, he ended up being a, a totally different person you know it was the changes there was no better way to describe it than that movie in terms of how he had changed, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I was on some, I could tell you stories about him and trips we did and things that went on that would blow your mind. But he was an extremely gifted surfer. He wasn't the best surfer for me in La Jolla, like everybody thinks. There was a guy named Brew Briggs who I th thought surfed better. He was, Chris was a very, very polished, stylish, practiced surfer. He would go out and he would do the same thing over and over and over again until he mastered it beyond whatever. And that that's fine. A lot of guys are that way, especially now and especially competitive surfers. But this guy, Brew Briggs, um, he was just like off the cuff surfer. He'd ride anything, didn't matter what. He'd take off the big rock backside and come out front side, switch stance off the top. You know, he was, he was just so unpredictable, but to me, that was the kind of surfing that I liked. I liked that kind of, that spontaneity, or however you say that word, that just comes from the pure joy of surfing, where Chris was like, you know, he was always in training, it seemed like. So, you know, it was a, and he carried that right over in his whole life, you know. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, a brilliant surfer that had a tragic ending, and um, I still see his son once in a while. Uh, he still comes down. And his son's a great kid, you know. But it, it was it was a tragedy. It was a really, really big tragedy at that time. How old was he when he passed? I think he was like 24, maybe. Yeah, that it was. So heavy. And how old were heavy. you when, when he passed? I was 26, two years older. Mm -hmm. You know. So again, back at that time, when he was 14, I was 16. You know, I mean, I had a car he didn't. Right. You know, so I, I drove. Um, you know, and I I knew him through various different people and. He was a bit of a um, a user in some aspects, you know, because he needed to get to where he needed to get. So you know, he would he would take advantage of, of people's kindnesses at times to, to further his own goal, you know. And that might sound nasty and mean, especially coming from you know somebody like me who loved him so much. But I mean, you know, it, it is what it is, and he'd be the first one to admit that. You know, if you were to talk to him today, or if you were able to talk to him before he passed, you know, 
um, he realized, you know, that that's not the way to go through life. But at the time, that's the way he was. And, um, you know, he was in it for himself and he was, you know, gunslinger kind of guy. Yeah. Well, it's like he never even got the chance to grow up and mature from those that, things. Really. That was the worst. 24 is still just Nothing, a kid. Dude. No, You're I still mean, just learning life lessons at that point. Yeah, he was on, like, if it had all gone his way, you know, like he had hoped it would, like people hope their lives will go, you know, um, who knows where it would have ended up, but you just have to be prepared for the inevitable and, you know, yeah, that was a tough one, really tough. He was a La Jolla guy, right? Yeah, he came from Florida, started surfing in La Jolla, I think when he was about 12. So, you know, he got good quick. You know, his brother Bart um, got him into surfing. He had a sister and a brother, and uh, he was a shell collector kid, quiet, really reserved. I think he was kind of bullied when he was younger, like back on the East Coast, you know. Um, so the aggressive side of him came out and then he found, you know, he found that aggression once he got good at surfing and he, he got good so quick that, I, you know, I think he, he threw everything he had into it and that was like his alter ego was this badass surf guy, you know, and, you know, it's just the way he developed. But he, he, had, a, he, he had a golden side, you know, if you, like most people do. If you get through the, the armor and, you know, if you get, get somebody... William Peggy from South Carolina for you, he called yesterday. For me? No, for Brian. Oh, thank you. If you get through people's exterior, you know, I mean, everybody's got their golden heart somewhere. Now, he was a great guy. He was, he was very, very loyal, you know, um, but, you know, it, it, it was all about him first. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like what a late teen, early 20s guy yeah. who was really motivated to get good at surfing would act like. And there were so many good surfers in La Jolla at that time. You know, I mean, like Berlowski Brothers and the McCoys and, you know, Mark Rule. I mean, like, I could name 40, 30, 40 guys that were, like, top-notch guys. Richard Kenvin, a little bit younger, but, you know, a vast talent. And they were a really tight little group, so um, they dominated Winnesee and the La Jolla Reef areas. You know, when they went out in any kind of a force, um, they were forced to be reckoned with. And everybody, like Chris, could, would just get in people's faces at Winnesee, really? and the guys would pound, want to pound him. But he had the backing of the whole the whole area, man. I mean, if you if you touch Chris O'Rourke, you know forget it you were gonna get pounded or you'd never surf that place again so you know he utilized that to, you know oh yeah I mean oh yeah all he had to do was whistle or he'd go into the parking lot and the guy would come walking up that he had you know, he had had words with and the guy would you know the guy was gonna get it so you know it was vibey a lot of places were vibey back in the 70s yeah so that was I was gonna ask that was like late 70s early 80s if my math is right Mid to late 70s. Mid to late 70s. Yeah. By 80s, he'd already had the affliction because he died, I think, in, a, I want to say 82, I think. So, you know, and he found out, I mean, he was, I think he had just turned 18 when he found out that he had had the cancer, you know. Um, I remember he had just come back from Australia and we went surfing this sacred trip he did up to Rincon and he had this big bulge in his neck that he had felt when he was in Australia. And he, he goes, feel this thing, and I'm feeling this big thing. I'm going, what the, what's that? He goes, I don't know, man. I go, man, you gotta get that thing checked out. And 
after we served, he came down and, you know, his girlfriend felt it. And she goes, yeah, I get that thing checked out. And that's how they found out he had the Hodgkiss. And, you know, then it was just all downhill from there. Wow, wow, 18 years old, he finds that. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Uh, having an interview. So young. So, tell me if this, you know, is going to break any kind of code, you know, and I'll redact it, but... I want to ask about the La Jolla spots, and some of them really, especially the Big Rock and Winnetee, those are like some pretty incredible waves. Yeah, you know, those are those are some of the better known waves, you know, up there. I mean, there's other waves there that are actually better than those waves that aren't known as much, you know. I mean, Horseshoe gets incredible, um, you know, Southbird Rock, you know, I mean, these other little nooks and crannies, you know, in that general area or every bit as good or maybe better Simmons you know but there are either a tougher wave or more challenging wave or there were more of a, a board eater wave so you know people didn't surf them as frequently and it wasn't until you know when you see got so crowded that it was just unbearable that people started to kind of satellite out to these other these other areas and they couldn't be local here so then they'd start to localize the other little spots until every spot pretty much had somebody that thought they owned it right, um, right. but yeah there's a there's a tremendous amount of really really good surfing in La Jolla it's more powerful you know the cliffs are cliffs are better overall there's a wider variety of waves and it's more user-friendly in terms of the power of the wave and so forth no less vibey not back in those days that's for sure but um, La Jolla is you know this from blacks to to PB Point, that whole little stretch there, man. You know, there's probably 20, 20 world-class breaks. Yeah, yeah, right. And I felt like, you know, I tried to be really sensitive about naming spots and stuff, but I feel like that, those spots, it's kind of okay because they're so challenging to surf and they're so vibed out. It's like, don't go surf them. You can yeah. do the name, but don't, don't go surf. Yeah. Especially because. I feel that when I'm releasing these podcasts, mostly beginners, you know, low-level surfers are listening. Um, so, full disclosure there, listeners, don't go try and paddle out at many of the spots in the oil. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I mean, mean, there is... It's, it's common sense, kind of, a, you know, kind of a deal, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I had to eventually paddle out those spots, but I paid some previous dues and I knew kind of what I was getting into, and being a kneeboarder, everybody hated you but that's why you know nobody really surfed big rock too much at that time so kneeboarders kind of took it over you know so that that was really the introduction for me to you know powerful quality waves and what you know what i personally could do and what my friends could do in in a situation when you were able to get those kind of waves you know when you see when i was a kneeboarder it's kind of boring when is a very very tricky wave to surf it's one stand of peak and it's it's a weird anomaly kind of a wave because the further you see me going down the line the further in you're going towards towards the other direction it it, it breaks like in a big y so you're on the outside peak and instead of going down the line you end up cutting back so many times you're further to the north than you are to the south even when you're going right because you know you're cutting back into it it's like this big u or something but it's it's super fun you know it's challenging and it, there's really fun parts of the wave but either you like it or you don't most people don't you know they just they don't they don't like it so can you talk about a little like why 
And then the kneeboard is kind of the first word, you know, I guess because it's like kind of slabby and pretty technical. Yeah, it wasn't makeable. Right. It was for most guys. Yeah, I mean, guys have surfed it on longboards back in the day. I mean, Butch Van Archdale, and, you know, he surfed the big rock. Guys back in the 60s, they, they surfed the rock, but it was more of a, uh, uh, a novelty surf than it was on any kind of regularity because it, it, it's very tide sensitive and it's, it's extremely, extremely ledgy and it's very, very hard to fit longboards in, into the barrel there or negotiate the drop. So for kneeboarding, it was a natural, you know, because you're on a board. At that time, our kneeboards were under five feet, you know, so it was no big deal, you know, or a lesser of a deal to, to free fall into it, land on your knees and, and pull in, you know. And um, so that was, you know, that was kind of the start of that. But then Chris O'Rourke and all those other younger guys, you know, they, they started picking up on it more. And then when the cord came out in 74, 75, you know, then it was game on because, you know, guys weren't so afraid of losing their boards and destroying it, you know. Although, you know, mo most of us wouldn't let people come out there with leashes. And it's still that way at the cliffs at some spots, you know. Yeah. You have a leash on and, you know, you're going to pay the price for it. I know. You know um, There's a particular spot that whatever. I will not name at the Yeah, it's and, not and worth I, naming. I love certain this areas. spot for this, that that kind of standard it's, it's kind of neat you know it, it feels well for me as a young surfer it feels like getting a taste of the kind of attitude and vibe that existed back in the day when surfing well, was a little bit more uh fewer like there was less surfers you know and there was more of a standard in the community about how you did things and well, i just kind of like experiencing that you know and, and working my and earning my place out there starting way down inside on the shoulder yeah. and slowly but surely working my way there's nothing better than surfing without a leash. You know, to this day, I don't like to wear a leash um, if, you know, I'm not surfing somewhere rocky or it's not so big. As I've gotten older, my stability rate, you know, I didn't mind swimming, you know, because the idea you learn board control and, you know, having a cord, you know, guys jump off, you know, they just, they kick out nowadays. They don't even think about trying to get their board. They just jump off. You know, they, they do whatever they want to call that pencil diver. You know, I don't even know. You know they jump they jump out back over the wave and the board yeah, yeah, yeah. goes flying with the cord. The dolphin dive and yeah. stretch the leash out. It, and of course crazy. Inevitably, you test your leash that many times, it's gonna break. It's gonna break. Or there's guys paddling out. You got a six foot cord, you got a six foot board, you got a six foot person, that's eighteen feet of of madness. So I mean I really suggest that people, you know, surf the beaches and surf places sometimes without a cord. It's so liberating to, to not be attached to your board and you focus and you concentrate so much more that you become a better surfer or you swim a lot. Right. And, and then if you swim a lot, you become a better swimmer. So it's a win-win either, either way. But the, the freedom, and especially like on a longer board, or like even a fish, you know, of not having that stupid thing dragging behind you or getting caught underneath your foot. It's a, it's something that I think people don't even think about. And they should. I mean, I've been with people, they forgot their leash and they don't go surf. And, you know, I'm going, hey, it's a beach break, man. What's the worst you're going to do? You're going to swim. Well, you know, I don't want to swim. So that gets right back to what we first talked about, being a good swimmer, being a body surfer, you know. You, you had to body surf because you lost your board. You had to catch a wave to get in and get that board. You didn't want to swim. You just body surfed a wave in and got it. You know, so, you know, 
love I love that whole theme of, of how surfing without a leash makes you a better surfer, makes you more conscious, yeah. makes you more thoughtful about what you do on the wave. Well, you appreciate it more. Right, and, and just, uh, you know, the awareness you need to have about what you're going to do next and, well, wait a minute, before I go approach this lip, is there a person inside me? Is, am I in this zone? Should I right. instead kick out and just grab my board and paddle back out? It, it just brings a... a, a completion to your surfing you know like it, it kind of yeah. closes the circle well people get mad at me because i don't wear a cord you know and they go you're gonna lose your board it's gonna hit somebody i'm all well you've got a cord you throw your board everybody out there i mean you guys are constantly throwing your boards you guys are constantly jumping off your boards you know for the few times that i usually fall you should you should be aware anyways you're you're aware when you're paddling out that there's somebody on the wave in front of you that has a leash on, so you should be prepared that I'm still riding a wave that I don't have a leash on. You know, you should still have that awareness and be prepared to be able to deal with it. So, you know, don't don't blame me if, you know, I don't have a cord on and I lose my board and you're not aware enough for it to, um, you know, for, for you to not take advantage of it. I'll talk to you about that. That that was uh, the voice you may have heard was Jim Ellington, uh, one of my favorite shapers, um, and uh, a guy brought an old board and a lightning bolt that he had shaped back in the 70s. So he came over to take a look at that. But that's again getting back to surfboards and surfboard shapers and, and themselves. So San Diego is just ripe with them. Right. I actually wanted to ask you about that. Like who who's really impressing you now with their work as a shaper? Or even glassers, or who's who stands out to you as like a really fine craftsman in the whole surf board building industry? Probably, to be honest with you, the the, the most dedicated person I've ever seen to the, the art of shaping and the finishing up of his work is a guy named Dane Purley. Dane Purley is out of Washington State. His dad opened the first surf shop in Washington. He migrated down to Santa Cruz and um, worked with Bob Pearson, Pearson Aero Surfboards for I think at least 12 years. Within Bob Pearson, he worked with, uh, you know, the Twinser guy, uh, Will Jobson and various other great shapers. And then he developed his own brand, Osprey. But not only is he extremely innovative in, on the designs that he makes, and he's one of the best surfers I've ever seen, he is a quality freak. The stuff that he builds into his surfboards, the people that glass his surfboards, he does things, you know, and has his boards built in such a way that I've never seen anybody do. And I've been doing this a long time. So he's pretty impressive in that way. There's a guy, a young guy uh, around, Jeff McCallum, who uh, most people might not know of, but he, he is probably one of the, the newest, most gifted guys I've seen because he went completely in his own direction. He worked uh, at Christensen's factory for a little bit, doing pickup work of some sort. So I think he learned some fundamentals from Chris. But after that, man, he came out with these weird shapes, flat deck, box rail, beaky nosed things. You know, back about 20 years ago now, that you know, they were, they looked ugly. You know, I mean, they, I'm like, God, can't you finish a board? You know, but um, he stuck by it, and you know. His boards are some of the best boards you can get. Very unusually shaped, but they work unbelievably well for what they are. So I like him. He's you know he's innovative. He's always done it on his own terms, and uh, you know he's he's just a quiet, 
under the radar kind of a guy. Um, and then, you know, there's the millions of other guys, the Larry Mobiles, the Bob Mitzfins, the Hank Warners, the Bill Menards, the John Hollies, the Skip Fries. Well, Skip's just, he's in a class by his own. But there's so many other, other guys that are out there. And um, most all these guys, they're still hand-shaped guys, you know, which I think is the essence of, of where we're at. I'm all about machines to get consistency down and when you are making models and you're making large numbers of boards and you want to have that consistency of what a model is supposed to be, go ahead. But there's really, I don't think anything better in my mind than having somebody just take that hunk of foam and hand shaping it for you, you know, because machined or not, every board is going to write different. But the idea of watching that thing get shaped and and, and the little magic that comes into that, man, you can't beat that. So getting a custom board, everybody should get a custom board at least once. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and if at right. all possible, be more involved with it and, you know, try to try to see it going through its stages if you can. And you'll have much more of an appreciation of not only surfing in general, but what it takes to build your board. Right. Right. It's not easy. It's grunt, terrible work. People ask me, how many boards have you shaped? I go, I've never shaped a board. I don't want to shape a board. My whole life, when I was 12, I got into working in a surf shop so I could always have the best boards. I wanted to ride the boards that were shaped by the best shapers at the time, Bill Caster and Diffenderfer and all the other guys that were legends. I didn't want to have to ride shitty boards that I made, you know, because I didn't surf that good in the first place. So, I mean, I wanted to have the best equipment. I'd rather have a good used old, you know, skip fry than, you know, a brand new board that somebody popped off a computer somewhere. Totally. I mean, ever since I started riding custom shapes, my partner, um, Evan, shapes all of my boards. And now I can't imagine having anything off the rack or just randomly picked out unless it's something from like an arrow or a shaper otherwise, you know, yeah. but like it's got to be hand shaped. Now that I've seen the process, now that I can appreciate that. Man, it's, it just it gives you a whole different feel of what's under your arm when you're walking out to the, the surf and paddling it. There's a pride in it, you know? Yeah, they definitely have different mojo. Yeah. And then that gets right back to the overlooked, underappreciated board builders, the glassers, uh -huh. the laminators, the sanders, the color guys, all those guys. It doesn't matter how good of a shaper you are, if you have a hack glass in it, they can take the juju or the magic right out of your board by tweaking the edges of the board, you know, not sanding it properly, um, making the board too heavy or consequently too light where it just falls apart. So those guys are the, the, the most unsung heroes of the whole trade. You know, the sander is one of the most important jobs. That's why so many sanders and so many different laminators have become shapers because they've had their hands on boards constantly when you're sanding you're feeling the edges you're feeling the profiles when you're laminating it the same thing so if you have an aptitude and a, a willingness to want to shape by just the osmosis of touching and working on all those boards that translates into you begin, being becoming a shaper and you know you're you're 50 percent ahead of anybody else that right. just walks in off the street but it's hard building boards it's yeah. never been easy what yeah, I, I, I don't understand it, I never have. It's, it's dusty, it's smelly, it's, you know, but I guess ultimately it's rewarding. Yeah. You know, if that's your trade, that's what you do, and that's what you do.
what, what do you think it, it like where do you see it all going do you think machines are going to completely take over or are we going to still have some souls that just hang on i can't see machines totally taking over um ever because of of the the hand felt and the appreciated uh feel that you get you know fishing guys make fishing poles uh, musical instruments boom you know there's going to always be the luthiers or the the fishing pole build guys or whatever that are going to be in demand um you know the commercial aspect of it is surfing becomes more commercial and it definitely does and you know you buy boards from offshore or you approach surfing as a as an activity as opposed to a lifestyle or something that's more meaningful in your life you know yeah that's going to be the the bulk of it the meat and potatoes of it probably but uh, the custom and the magic that will never leave I'm glad I'm glad you think that and I guess it's really up to us the surfers yeah like, where do we put our money you know well I see a lot of guys now um, you know that are are appreciating that you know maybe because I deal with with individual shapers I don't deal with the masses you know I don't have any major labels in here because everybody else has them and they're so accessible and I, I choose to, to work more with private individuals that, that I know and, and provide a, equipment for people that's um, maybe a little bit more outside the box, you know, maybe a little bit more specialized. So um, maybe I see it more, more frequently, but we do a lot of custom boards out of here, a lot of custom boards. And that's a good thing because whoever gets a custom board, they get educated at least out of here you know they come in and when Ellington's doing it he literally will come over with the blank the customer will be here Jim comes over with the raw blank his templates they draw up the outline right there in front the customer helps Jim hold the templates on the board so they've got some of their juju into that board and if they never get a custom board again at least they've had that experience to see what goes into a board and at the same time, again, you get educated. Why are we doing what we are doing to your surfboard? You know, or you want to get a custom from any other guy that we do customs with? Sure, bring in the board. Got to see the board you have. Even before I sell a board to somebody, we always ask them to bring in whatever you're riding if you can or show me pictures so we can in-depth analyze what you're on and, and try to put you on the best surfboard you can possibly get. And if, you know, they come to me because most of them are open for that suggestion. They, you know, they seek out, you know, Bird Surf Shed because we got knowledgeable crew and they have questions that they want answered. You know, otherwise they just go online and pick it up or, you know, the, 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 the website says you need a 6.2 that's 32 ounces, that's, you know, five fin option and go pick one up somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, yeah, that's, that's fine that too, yeah. Shops, sure. It's good either way. But, you know, I never want to think that, you know, that's why we have a shaping room in, in the premises. I mean, there's a shaping room right here so that, you know, that will never get forgotten. And that, that art of shaping and that craftsmanship of building surfboards, it's going to always be around. One so shape or another. That. Yeah, so am I. I mean, I, I will definitely be a supporter of yeah. it. I just can't see it not being that rich. Materials will change, you know, techniques might change. But um, they haven't changed much in the last 60, 70 years. You know, they're still fundamentally done the same way. Uh, do, you, do 
you have some time to show me some boards? Can we go pick out a few boards that you really like or, or some, some Whatever you want, bro. I'd love to do that.